Job asserts, like Proverbs, the true wisdom for human beings is avoiding evil and fearing the Lord. And if Job asserts that here in this chapter, it is because he is emphasizing this point as part of his defense. He is explaining what makes him qualified to be a judge, a shofet, the fact that he understands that there are things that matter more than intellect itself. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 249. Judge Job, I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. Let us speak of Maury Liebman, an attorney and friend of the late Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. When Maury Liebman passed away, Justice Scalia delivered a eulogy celebrating his life. I took note of it when I read the book Scalia Speaks, a collection of the justice's public remarks. Along with speeches about the law, faith, and America, there was, to my surprise, included in this book a eulogy for Maury Liebman. Though it was a eulogy, the speech was, like most of Justice Scalia's remarks, charming and amusing as well. Scalia began by saying the following about Maury Liebman, quote, Maury Liebman was Jewish. Indeed, with the possible exception of Abraham, God never created anybody more Jewish than Maury Liebman. He had, moreover, what I consider a distinctively American delight in not only his own ethnicity, but also everybody else's. He somehow enjoyed and celebrated my Italianness and my wife Maureen's Irishness as much as his own Jewishness. One had the impression that he would like to belong to each and every identifiable ethnic group, if only he could. He loved them all and understood that the America he and I knew would not be the same place without them. End quote. Then Scalia got to talking about Maury Liebman's virtues, and it is here that the eulogy is at first glance somewhat surprising, because the Supreme Court justice, known for being brilliant, when invited to eulogize an attorney that he knew, expressed his belief in the eulogy that Maury Liebman was not necessarily the absolutely smartest person that he ever met. This is what Scalia said, quote, I frankly don't know how smart Maury was. He was a spectacularly successful lawyer, of course, but I sometimes suspected that he would maybe have gotten a gentleman's C in Phil Curlin's constitutional law course at the University of Chicago. Now, Scalia continued, I don't consider that speaking ill of the dead, because I have never thought that smarts counted for that much. My father used to tell me that brains are like muscles. They can be hired by the hour. It is character and judgment that are not for sale. And for sure, Maury had unmatched quantities of those. Or to put the point more elegantly in the words of William Penn, knowledge is the treasure, but judgment the treasurer of a wise man. He that has more knowledge than judgment is made for another man's use more than his own. End quote. Scalia went on in the talk to further emphasize this, that moral qualities are more important than pure smarts, or as he put it, quote, Maury was a good man with the kind of deep-down, fundamental, instinctive, irreplaceable goodness that provokes the description, salt of the earth. I never heard a mean-spirited word from him. That is not to say I never heard a hate-filled word from him. Maury hated as exuberantly as he loved, but only evil things that deserve the hatred of good men. Maury's basic decency and humanity were, I think, the greatest ingredient of his success. It may be true that nice guys don't win ballgames, but it is also true that only genuinely good people come to have as many loyal friends as Morris Liebman. End quote. Thus we have a brilliant judge telling us that brilliance is overrated and that character is much more important. And the themes of judging and character come together as we seek to learn more about who 
Job was and what his story has to teach all of us. The story of the book of Job, as we have seen, focuses largely on a tale of a man and his three purported friends. Job explodes in anger and grief at what has occurred to him, and ultimately, at certain points in his declamations, decries human existence itself as hopeless. Meanwhile, shockingly, his friends seem unempathetic. Medieval Jewish exegetes have attempted to highlight the differences between the words put forward by the three men sitting with Job and have sought to portray them as embodying three different philosophical schools of thought. This may be the case, but what unites Job's comrades is that they are all criticizing Job and telling him that if suffering has come upon him, it must be due to some sin that he has committed. As we will see in our episode tomorrow, another individual is about to insert himself in the scene, criticizing the three friends of Job for their failure as friends. But let us ask ourselves, if these three are wrongly quick to criticism, what exactly do they believe that Job has done wrong? What crime do they believe he has committed that has brought upon him such severe suffering? Amongst the many chapters in which we find the friends of Job criticizing him, let us look at one of the most severe, chapter 22, words spoken by Eliphaz in verse 5. He says to Job, Is not thy wickedness great and thine iniquities infinite? For thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught and stripped the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink, and thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth, and the honorable man dwelt in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty, and the arms of the fatherless have been broken. Therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee. Why would a friend of Job accuse Job of such crimes? Sending widows away empty, breaking the arms of the fatherless. What about Job's life would even put Job in a position to do something like this? It is Rabbi Yaakov Maidan in his fascinating book on Job who suggests the following in a revelatory reading of this biblical story. It is clear, Maidan says, that Job has a public position in this society. He is a shofet, a judge or a magistrate, meaning it is he who issues judgment on the people. And as I understand it, according to this interpretation, Job's colleagues are thus assuming that if Job is being punished, he must have perverted justice in some profound way, violated his position somehow, betrayed the public trust. Now, as Rabbi Maidan points out, we know from the beginning of the book that God himself tells us that Job has not done this. But the unfair criticism of Job's friends allows us to finally learn something about Job's identity and career. The fact that Job was a judge, Rabbi Maidan argues, can be seen from Job's response to these accusations. He begins by describing his life before his suffering. And when we look carefully, we can tell from his words that he is obviously a public figure. Job in chapter 29 says, Oh, that I were as in months past, as in the days when God preserved me, when his lamp shined upon my head and when by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in the days of my youth when the secret of God was upon my tabernacle, when the Almighty was yet with me, when my children were about me, when I washed my steps with butter and the rock poured me out rivers of oil, when I went out to the gate through the city, when I prepared my seat in the street. The young men saw me and hid themselves, and the aged arose and stood up. The princes refrained talking and laid their hand on their mouth. The nobles held their peace, and their tongue cleaved to the roof of their mouth. Job describes himself as preparing his seat in public, as admired by all, respected by all. This is Job the public figure. This is Job the Shofet. 
This is Judge Job. Job then defends himself against his friend's accusation by arguing that he always acted with integrity and always sought to advance justice in his role. He says in chapter 29, verse 11, When the ear heard me, then it blessed me. And when the eye saw me, it gave witness to me, because I delivered the poor that cried, and the fatherless, and him that had none to help him. The blessing of him that was ready to perish came upon me, and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. And he adds in verse 13, I was a father to the poor, and the cause which I knew not I searched out. Job, in other words, avows that he has always sought justice as a judge, as a leader, as a public figure, as a magistrate. And again, he declares in chapter 31, verses 16, 17, 21, and 22, If I have withheld the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel myself alone, and the fatherless hath not eaten thereof, if I have lifted up my hand against the fatherless when I saw my help in the gate, then let mine arm fall from my shoulder blade, and mine arm be broken from the bone. It is, I think, with a Ramadan's interpretation in mind that we can better understand the words with which Job precedes this defense of himself. Right before Job describes in chapter 29 the integrity with which he conducted himself in his role as a public judge, he says the following in chapter 28. Verse 12, But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man knoweth not the price thereof, neither is it found in the land of the living. The depth saith, it is not in me, and the sea saith, it is not with me. It cannot be gotten for gold, neither shall silver be weighed for the price thereof. Job says, But where shall wisdom be found? Humanity's intellect, Job is expressing, is limited. And he adds in verse 20, Whence then cometh wisdom, and where is the place of understanding? Seeing it is hid from the eyes of all living and kept close from the fowls of the air. Destruction and death say we have heard the fame thereof with our ears. God understandeth the way thereof, and he knoweth the place thereof. For he looketh to the ends of the earth, and seeth unto the whole heaven, to make the weight for the winds, and he weigheth the waters by measure. When he made a decree for the rain, and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then did he see it and declare it, he prepared it, yea, and searched it out. And unto man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Where then can wisdom be found? Job asserts, like Proverbs, the true wisdom for human beings, is avoiding evil and fearing the Lord. And if Job asserts that here in this chapter, it is because he is emphasizing this point as part of his defense. He is explaining what makes him qualified to be a judge, a shofet, the fact that he understands that there are things that matter more than intellect itself. This, of course, is the point that Scalia, a judge, was attempting to express. In a discussion about the book Scalia Speaks with one of its co-editors, Justice Scalia's son Christopher, I mentioned how striking I found it that a brilliant man like Justice Scalia would have said that brilliance was overrated. Christopher Scalia responded by noting that this aspect of Justice Scalia's worldview could also be seen in the fact that Justice Scalia's favorite founding father was Washington. It is the other founders that impress us with their intellectual grandeur, but Scalia admired Washington. And, as one can also see in the book Scalia Speaks, he explained why when he spoke at Christopher Scalia's high school graduation. One would expect at a commencement that a Supreme Court justice would praise learning, knowledge, which of course Justice Scalia valued. But instead the justice said the following, quote, Since I tend to be a rather contrary character, however, I do not intend to praise knowledge and learning. I don't intend to run them down either. 
but I do want to get you to put them in proper perspective. Let us consider the subject of knowledge and learning in the context of the founders of our country. Those men included, as you may recall, some extraordinarily brilliant intellects who had received college degrees in an era when few persons, even among the rich, did so. James Madison and William Patterson had BAs from Princeton and Patterson and MA. John Jay had a degree from King's College, now Columbia. And Alexander Hamilton was attending that college when the war interrupted. Jefferson, of course, had his BA from William and Mary. And James Wilson, his BA from St. Andrew's University in Scotland. But who was the unquestioned leader of that brilliant circle of men? The one whom all consulted, whose advice all heeded, whose mere presence seemingly overawed them all. It was, of course, George Washington, who was no dummy, but who had little formal education. Around him, I have no doubt, the likes of Jefferson and Hamilton could do intellectual cartwheels. Yet somehow, for whatever reason, this was a man who commanded their respect as no other did. So there are some qualities, Scalia continued, whatever they are, that must be added to knowledge and learning insofar as leadership abilities are concerned. End quote. True leadership, Scalia is saying, is found in qualities other than brilliance. It is found first and foremost in character. And thus, in another speech, this judge, Justice Scalia, who clearly valued intellect and education, nevertheless reflected as follows, quote, how much stock we place in education, intellect, cultural refinement, and how much of our substance we are prepared to expend to give our children the very best opportunity to acquire education, intellect, cultural refinement. Yet those qualities are of only secondary importance to our children and to the society that their generation will create. End quote. In at least one version of the Sephardic liturgy, when the memorial prayer known as the Hashkabah is recited for a rabbinic leader, the recitation begins with a verse from Job, one that we focused on today. Where can wisdom be found? It is only now that I have come to understand why, perhaps, it is this passage from Job that is cited. In remembering a rabbinic public figure, we emphasize that more than learning, it is character and fear of God that produces leaders worth admiring. This, of course, is a lesson that Justice Scalia sought to express. This is a lesson that we learn from the defense offered by Judge Job. And this is a lesson that must be learned again and again if we are to produce a society worthy of the next generation. This is Mayor Soloveitchik looking forward to learning together tomorrow, signing off.